Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Well, hello. Good morning. Uh, Hey, my name is Elliot. If I don't know you, I uh, get to pastor at Waterstone our Saturday night service, which I really love, and then our uh, middle school, high school, and young adults. So it's really a fun role. Uh, This morning is going to look a little different than uh, the Essential series. Normally at Waterstone, we're really big on starting with uh, our passage and and really expanding from there um, into our topic and then into culture. Uh, This morning, I'm going to start with uh, our topic and culture, and then we're going to wrap looking at um, the passage. So that said, this is a morning I've been dreading for uh, a while now. I feel, and by the way, it's a good morning. It's actually my wife's birthday, so happy birthday, Madison. Uh, this, yeah, there we go. Come on. Uh, this morning, uh, I've got to be honest, I feel a little like I drew the short straw. We're doing this series called The Essentials, and uh, there's been basically all the topics that whether you are Catholic, Orthodox, or one of the million Protestant denominations, uh, or non-denominational, that's a whole other thing there, uh, that we can all get on board with. So triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I feel as though all of those have some traction, uh, things that you can say to speak to culture, speak to um, our faith with fresh information. Last week we looked at Scripture. There's a lot of tension in that. There's uh, a lot to be contested and questioned about Scripture, confusing passages. Today, though, is on salvation. And as I thought about the common gospel message. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sin, you're a sinner. Cross, Jesus died. Salvation, you can be forgiven. I struggled, and I tried to be honest with myself and honest with God about why did I struggle to believe that this sermon at best would be obvious and at worst might be trite. Honestly, I realize some of that is because I don't think that this message really resonates with our culture, with friends and coworkers, to say, hey, if you have guilt, Jesus can remove it. And, and personally, on a personal level, and this is not gimmicks to preach and get your attention, I wish sometimes I was more excited about sin cross salvation than I personally am. Some of you have experienced this. We talk about sharing your faith. And maybe there are grandchildren or roommates or a girlfriend or girlfriend's parents or whoever it is, coworkers, who you want to share your faith with. But to be honest, on an intuitive level, or maybe explicitly, you know that if you begin with the premise that you are a person in need of forgiveness, they don't feel that need. And so you might resonate with me that the common gospel message we have offered doesn't seem to have much traction in today's culture and context. But then I had a sort of breakthrough moment. On Wednesday morning, I was, I was praying and I was trying to be really just open and honest about my feelings and reflections on this, not expecting to share it with all of you as well. And I realized that just because the message we've been offering our culture 
doesn't have much traction or seem to have much weight doesn't mean the faith we have isn't critical for our world. And instead, we should, and this is what we'll be doing this morning, we should pause and reevaluate the message we've been offering the world and ask, is it true? I believe yes. Just to be, so all of you self-proclaimed theologians at home and in person who are drafting an email to Larry and CCing me on it, let's just slow down. I want to be clear. I believe that this message, sin cross salvation, is entirely true. I'm not disagreeing with it. I believe it's central. Not everyone might even say that, but I do. I believe it's, you can't talk about God and who He is and how He interacts with us without this. And then finally, I believe it's necessary for the full picture of what it means to be a Christian. But is it complete? That's my question this morning. So let me unpack what I mean when I, when I talk about sin, uh, cross, and salvation. So uh, some of you, you maybe grew up, uh, and this was a graph that you uh, are familiar with, right? So there's man or woman, okay? Uh, and then there's sin, and that separates us from God, and then obviously there's God. And the way we've preached this message for a long time now is that we want to bridge that gap. We want to get there. And so we do certain things like these to try to get there. We do good things. We go to church. We're religious. We get baptized. Uh, We don't uh, smoke, dip, or chew, or hang with those who do. Amen. And those things aren't good enough to get us to God, but something happened. The cross. And it bridges the gap between you and I to the Father. Again, I believe this message. I really do. I believe it is entirely true. It's the message that brought me to faith when my family wasn't currently going to church and I was invited by a boy in detention in sixth grade. True story. This is the message that has brought me here, or at least brought me into the church. And it's in Scripture. Let let me show you what I mean. Colossians 2 sums this up really well says this, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Would you read this next sentence with me? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So if anyone, if anyone wants to, uh, say, well, yeah, it's not interesting, it's not engaging, it doesn't have traction, my coworkers don't seem to care about it because it's not in Scripture, you can't say that. You can say you disagree with it, but I agree with it, and it's in Scripture. So this is where we are this morning, and this is where I was this week, realizing that the common gospel message that we offer to so many people doesn't seem to really scratch the itch our culture has or answer the questions our community is asking, at least at this point in time. And I wrestled because I recognize that about the common gospel message we present, sin cross salvation. But I believe that the faith we have is critical for our world. So I want to present sort of three issues I see with sin cross salvation. And, uh, and then I want to unpack what I think uh, God has for us 
beyond that, but certainly including that. So here it is. So first is con- the contextual. Uh, there was a, uh, or there, yeah, I guess there was. He's passed away now. There was a famous British theologian called Leslie Newbegin. Some of you might be familiar with him. This is a picture of him. He, uh, he wrote prolifically. Some people say he was as influential as our church fathers, which is kind of like a, whoa, that's a big statement. But what I love about Leslie Newbegin is he actually uh, lived the majority of his life in the south of India working as a missionary there. He was born in the beginning of the 1900s, and he passed away in 1998. So basically, his lifespan was essentially the 1900s. And before he passed away, he said this. He said, the church in the West, which is all of us, has a model that assumes those walking into church have three core beliefs. First, that there's a personal God a God that you and I can actually know. Second, that there's an afterlife. There's something that comes after this. And third, there's some guilt, there's some shame in need of forgiveness. Leslie Newbegin said that for the church, the model that we've used of evangelism is essentially waiting for people to come to our church and all we had to do, myself as a preacher, you over a meal, whatever context, is just connect the dots. Personal God is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you can know him. Afterlife, there's a heaven and hell. You have a choice in this. And for forgiveness, there's the cross. And for years and years, this model worked. But Leslie Newbegin started to see something way ahead of his time and ours. And he said that what happens when we don't attend church anymore? When there's no longer a social pressure or a perceived social benefit, where all of a sudden we can't count on the pews being filled or Christmas and Easter, or when all of a sudden weddings no longer take place in church buildings by pastors and funerals, Don't rely on the local body of believers to help bury someone with honor. What do we do then? And he said even more so, it's not just about having people come to our church, but what if the dots are no longer there? You know, if I'm uh, like many of the people you know in your community, first off, I don't even necessarily accept the paradigm of a personal God, of your monotheism, which honestly feels a little like imperialistic. Uh, Who knows if he or she or they or it even conforms, if there's anything, by the way, to what we think about as God, paintings of a white beard, a Caucasian old man. And then on top of that, why would I waste my life, no offense to you Christians, okay, I appreciate the stuff you do, some of it at least, why would I waste my life, our culture says, thinking about or worrying about or planning for an afterlife that reason and science don't exactly endorse. And then last but not least, I don't feel I need forgiveness. The common ethos of today is not that I am a guilty person. It's that if I do things that harm other people, then there's something wrong. It's utilitarian. But if I'm not harming anyone, then I don't feel guilt for my actions. I have slowly ripped off the moral price tag of so many things in life that the Christian ethic you have says is wrong. 
Leslie Newbegin says, the church needs to rethink our message and model. He said this before he passed away in 1998. I think it has only accelerated how true this has become today. But don't be discouraged. So far you're like, this is the worst church. Why did I come here? I believe just because the model we've had was efficient doesn't mean the message we have is sufficient. Does that make sense? Just because the model we've used was efficient for a period of time doesn't mean the message we have is sufficient. Some of you might be thinking, um, well, this is frustrating for me. Because younger generations just don't seem to accept things that the world, and in many parts you're right, for over human history have seemed to accept. That it's not just the material, there's something else. You can go to Africa, Asia, it doesn't matter what continent you're on, world history has generally accepted that there's something more. And we get frustrated. So I want to say two points, if that's any kind of part of how you feel. First, and this is how I open up every job interview. I don't have an MBA, but I watch a lot of Shark Tank. I do. I watch a lot of Shark Tank. Hate Mr. Wonderful. Amen? Come on. Uh, Love Mark Cuban, okay? One of the things Mark Cuban says is, and you've heard it, it's it's a cliche, is that uh, necessity is the mother of innovation or invention. As a church, do you know that historically we have embraced that? for 2,000 years, we've looked at our culture and allowed it to force us to ask hard questions and reimagine paradigms that we've had. We've even taken things that the secular culture, like Christmas and the date that we celebrate it, and we've baptized it and said, no, there's nothing beyond what God can use. If we are going to continue to reach the world, not even the next generation, just your peers, my peers, whoever, We've got to be willing to take this as an opportunity. And that's the second point I want to say. Take it as an opportunity to reevaluate our message. I I was really struggling this last week, like I said already, uh, with this sermon. Just really disliking it. Felt like everything I was writing is just obvious or trite or whatever. I brought it up to my small group. And one of the women in my small group said something interesting. She said, you know one of the issues with the sin uh, cross salvation message? is that it doesn't actually say anything for our daily lives. It's as though the purpose of your life is to avoid hell and, if you're an overachiever, maybe help others do the same. I thought, what, what a true statement. Uh, sin cross salvation, if that's it, it doesn't have a lot of purpose for our daily lives. So, so the first issue I, I, I think I see with it is the contextual. Many of you experience this. You feel this, or you explicitly kind of had named this and you know this. A second one is this, though. It's the functional. Functionally, I think there's an issue of all we are sharing. From the pulpit, from our Instagram, from our Twitters, from our side conversations. If it's just, you've got guilt, Jesus forgives you, you're good, let's just wait. Let's play golf in Italy until we go to be with Jesus. It's the functional. All right, so how did we get here? That's a question I started asking myself. Um, Let's go back to like uh, 1000, 11, the 12th century, like 1100s, right? Uh, Medieval times, medieval times, woo, medieval times. 
So the feudal system is in full swing, all right? I mean, it is all the rage. And so during that time, there's a justice system where uh, if you offend the king, so I offend the king and I'm a wealthy landowner, okay? Somehow I have to pay that back, but I'm a wealthy landowner. So it's going to be probably with livestock or gold or something like that. But you, (laughs) you're a peasant. Now you laugh, but you are. You're a peasant in my hypothetical, okay? I'm in control. So you're a peasant in this hypothetical. So I'm a wealthy landowner and I offend the king, so it's just gold. But then you're a peasant and you offend the king and it's your life you have to pay with. See, in the feudal system, it was an issue of how big is the gap between you and the one that's offended, and that determines, that determines the price that has to be paid. It was called satisfaction theory. In other words, based out of the norms of the day, they understood how God related to them. Fast forward 500 years, and two guys named John Calvin and Martin Luther show up on the scene, and the feudal system is no longer really a thing. Now it's a government system where there's payment to be paid when you've done something wrong. And then all of a sudden they get rid of the gap theory and it becomes an issue of we just have to pay back God. And luckily we're human and Jesus was fully human and God is God and Jesus is God and that's a whole other thing. And so Jesus can pay that back. So they get rid of the satisfaction theory, the gap, and it's like, okay, but we still have to pay this back. And now we fast forward another 500 years, and we have moving pictures and A-tracks. Full disclaimer, I have no idea what an A-track looks like. I'm just trying to be relevant. (laughs) And and VHS tapes, okay? And then if you're an older millennial, Vine. Ah. And then if you're Gen Z, TikTok. And all of a sudden, our culture has a a attention span that demands short, concise, clear communication. Say it, get in, get out. And in our day and age, the way that we communicate and understand what God's done with us is clear, short, concise. Say it. So we have the four spiritual laws. Raise your hand if you ever experienced the four spiritual laws in your life. Awesome. Um, uh, We have the bracelets. This is um, not one. I, I'm a sucker for fundraisers for students, and so this is like a, just a bracelet that says something I don't understand. But, uh, but the bracelets, some of you remember this, it had green, come on now, you know this, green for God created, black was the next color, and it meant sin entered the world, red, Jesus died on the cross, white, we're white, we're like forgiven, and then yellow is like gold, which is so funny we couldn't find gold beads. They had to have been cheap, but anyway, but we had yellow, right, to uh, signify like heaven and stuff. So what we've done with good intentions is try to make the gospel so clear that I would argue we've made it incomplete. I, uh, I want to ask us one more question, and here it is. What does the oversimplified gospel message create? So, so the context we can say, okay, maybe people don't track with this message. I, I can see that to some degree. I'm still uncomfortable with it, but I can see it. Fine. Functionally, though, but what does it create? I, I want to say an incomplete gospel message uh, gives an incomplete invitation um, I, love, I love memes. I love this guy in memes. I don't know, has, has anyone see this guy, seen this guy? Uh, or has this ever happened to anyone? Okay, so 
uh, when I first moved to Waterstone, um, I helped someone move. And I remember having this happen. Now, we all know what's supposed to happen when you help someone move, okay? There's like unwritten laws, all right? I'll show up to your house. There'll be boxes. You haven't broken down your uh, mattress like, uh, or like bed thing. What's the thing? Frame. Thank you, bed frame. I'm the preacher today. This is good news, okay? So, so bed frame. Uh, and then in two and a half hours, I'm almost certainly guaranteed uh, pizza and if I'm lucky, beer, Right? Like, that is what it means to move someone in, in, in America. So I remember showing up to this person's house and walking the door. Nothing was packed, okay? But it even got better or worse. Uh, they didn't have boxes and tape. I, I honestly remember thinking, am I supposed to just, like, grab as much expired Kraft mac and cheese and cans from your closet, run to my car, and just dump it, and then do that for three hours? I showed up, and I actually ended up running out and getting boxes and tape. I showed up feeling as though I got duped. The invitation that I was given was to help you move. And now I'm showing up, and there's a whole lot more work to do. That is what we are doing unintentionally. If in an effort to functionally be clear and quick, we communicate that the purpose of our lives is to avoid hell, and if you're an overachiever, maybe help others do the same. It's an incomplete invitation. And then, like I said, I think it lacks purpose for our daily lives. All right. So now here, this is sort of where we land the plane. I think there's not just a contextual argument and the functional one, but I would say there's a biblical argument to be made as well. And to be really, really to the point on this. It's not that the Bible says something different. It's not. It's that the Bible says more. Does that make sense? It's not that the Bible says something different. It's that the Bible says something more. This week I was thinking about how we read the Bible. And I, uh, last week, Larry preached on Scripture and what it means for us as Christians to believe it's inspired, it has authority. And I realized that for a lot of the way I've read the Bible, it's a belief that each individual book was inspired, whatever that actually means. And God maybe had an idea of what had came I mean, certainly knew, but wasn't necessarily actively thinking about what was coming next, the next sort of book to be inspired. And you've got 66 separate writings, right? Small letters, large documents, poetic, all this stuff. And then you just compile it. And what do you, what do you get when you get 66 separate documents of inspired um, writings? You get a book of inspired writings. But what I started realizing, especially as I was reading some of the church fathers, right? Irenaeus and Augustine, or for those of you who are pretentious, Augustine. Ah, I'm kidding. I started realizing that the way that the church has historically seen the Bible is not individual snippets and scenes in human history that are inspired, but instead a God that inspired those books and knew in the beginning when Job and Genesis and some of the earliest books are written, what the arc of that narrative would be. And he, and I think this is actually a higher view of Scripture, didn't just inspire individual books, but did that too. I firmly believe that. But also inspired the arc 
of Scripture, the narrative. And then I asked, what do we get when we read that? So, so this is what I think. First, we start in the garden. And we have to have a strong theology of the fall, right? We've got to have a really good understanding that when sin entered the world, when disobedience entered the world, it impacted everything. Uh, one person I've talked to once said, uh, when the fall happened, it hit every area of our lives. And that means that multiple things are impacted. Our relationship with God, right? So now we are longing constantly for a relationship with God, for, for something beyond ourselves. Our relationship with nature. All of a sudden, there's uh, uh, natural evils, tsunamis and earthquakes. And, and there's also uh, the big C, personal ones, cancer or diabetes, our relationship with nature. There's relationship with self. As a person who pastors a lot of young people, I see this with uh, body image issues or cutting or whatever it might be, just, uh, just generally things, our sexuality, our gender. These are ways in which the fall, if we have a good, strong theology of the fall, it shouldn't surprise us that these things are impacted. And then finally, our relationship with others. It's why there can be a schoolyard fistfight, or there can be a dictator in Russia who bombs a maternity ward. We have to begin with a strong theology of the fall. It means that everything, everything is impacted. That's the beginning of the book. And then we see throughout the book that there is this uh, ongoing fight between darkness and light. There's language in the Old Testament and the New Testament between good and evil. And they're not equals, but they're definitely both at play. And there's some sort of authority that the evil has on the earth that God has for some reason allowed. And his people continue to get back into slavery, but he wants to free them. But now, spoiler alert, so if you don't want to know this, you can walk out now. The end of the book... Raps like this, uh, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Pause. Uh, that's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. You won't remember that in five minutes and it doesn't matter. Basically what it means is it's the gospels, it's, it's uh, uh, John, his way of saying everything. It's like instead of saying this music stand and that TV and uh, you and the mic and the seat, I just were to say from the back wall to the front wall, it's everything is made new. It's impacted. He's trying to say that, okay, yes, if we have a good theology of the fall, everything is, everything is impacted. But then when Jesus comes back, something's different, something has changed, and everything is made new and restored. Revelation 25, uh, 21, 5 goes on to say this. He who is seated on the throne said, if you'd read this with me, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So here's now where we step back. Everything is impacted. Everything is redeemed. Not just our relationship with God, 100% yes, but also others, self, and nature. And all of that is made new. So whatever happened 
on the cross has got to be big enough to redeem all of it. In other words, if we look at that equation, and you don't have to be a math teacher to do this. Shout out to you, Mike Schmidt. You can see that if everything is affected and everything is made new, then whatever change in the middle has got to be bigger than you avoiding hell and maybe helping other people do the same. Amen? You know what I think? Let's go back, Taryn, one, if you don't mind. I think this is why it doesn't resonate. And and honestly, uh, until last night, Paul Jocelyn was was kind of talking with me after my message. I realized there's a reason we say brokenness instead of sin. I always thought it was our way of just kind of softening it. Like, oh yeah, God believes we all have brokenness. And I was like, ah, that's kind of lame to me, if I'm honest. What I realized is sin intuitively means me and God. And us as Christians in the church, we're really good at identifying that and preaching that message. And by the way, we should continue to preach that message. It's true. Even if culture doesn't uh, uh, approach with the same premises, it's still true. But our culture, our world is really good about recognizing brokenness in the other three areas. Uh, many of them are doing self-work. Counseling doesn't have a stigma. They recognize they have issues from childhood and issues in their marriage. They see problems with nature. They hate an oil spill. They want to know how can we fix that. We have a responsibility. This isn't liberal woke stuff. This is the kingdom of God, by the way. They say, yeah, I see that there's a relationship with nature where, where if uh, all of a sudden we are just ruining uh, like some sort of population in the Gulf, then we should care about that. And then finally, relationship with others. They recognize brokenness in interpersonal relationships. The beauty, and you've seen this, but here it is, is that the cross covers all four. The cross, again, that math equation, if everything is impacted and everything's restored, then you and I can, can share a message, can live out a message that says it's not just, although it is absolutely, you and God. But God wants to redeem all things, starting now. So where does this leave us? I want to show you, uh, go back to Colossians 2, if you would. Uh, I I showed you 13 and, and 14, but for those of you who are still skeptical or maybe not convinced... Uh, we read the first part, he forgave our sins. You read that with me, and it's canceled charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. I'm in the middle there. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then it says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the what? The cross. In other words, the cross does cover all of it. It has started a a massive upturning and overturning of powers of evil and darkness in our world. And do you know what? First and most importantly, that is a more complete gospel than whatever we could put on our wrist and say in 30 seconds. But also, it's a more compelling gospel because it impacts our daily lives. So for all of you this morning, 
If you're here and you're a skeptic, you're a cynic, you're welcomed here, you probably like to call yourself a realist. We'll let you call yourself that. That's cool. But, but if you're not bought in, I mean this sincerely, we, there's always a space for that at Waterstone. Even journey of faith is this process. We even see that. Jesus talks with this guy in, in, the, in the New Testament called Nicodemus, who's like not really bought in and then asks some questions. And, then, and, and it's just journey. And Jesus is comfortable with that. We're comfortable with that. But if you are bought in, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this changes our lives. It, it, three ways it changes our lives. The first is it changes our perspective on the world. All of a sudden, you and I, we realize when we follow Jesus that it's as though we are all walking on a glass floor without any, feet, uh, without any shoes and the glass floor is completely shattered. In other words, living in this world, be it beautiful and good, has unavoidable brokenness. And we have a different perspective. It's as though uh, you have a friend who's a Navy SEAL, which is a pretty cool hypothetical for you, by the way. Uh, and he has offered you night vision goggles. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all the darkness of the world, you can see clearly. You know what this means practically? It means that when we see on the news white supremacy and, and, and the Proud Boys, we as Christians, regardless of whether we are white or brown or otherwise, we know that our spiritual blood runs deeper and longer than our ethnic blood. And that white supremacy opposes the image of God and is demonic. And instead, it's not just extremists. It's not just people who have some ideology that we disagree with. It opposes the cross of Jesus Christ. This message, a more full, robust look at what the gospel is, changes our perspective on the world because we see with clarity that it's the powers and authorities of the world that Christ has called us to oppose. So first, it's our perspective. Second, though, is it gives us hope. I, uh, this last two, three weeks ago, um, uh, you all made it possible, and thank you, I mean that, for our youth staff to go to London and take part in about 30 different youth workers from New Zealand and Spain and France and uh, Canada and um, uh, England. It was, it was a really cool experience, and I got to meet a, a woman there who's writing her PhD currently on um, uh, miraculous healings in the country of Wales. And, and, and uh, she's going to a really well-respected school. She's writing this dissertation. And she's, she's documented over the last 12 years 604 miraculous healings. And, and this is not like the walk up in a wheelchair, you didn't need one in the first place, and jump out and we celebrate. The, this is a real deal. And, and interestingly enough, I'll say this as a caveat, I, I, I've experienced healing supernaturally. And I have not. In fact, uh, last year I had two surgeries that were not planned and I still haven't fully healed from them. And I had this girl pray for me. So God doesn't always heal. But sometimes he does. And that phrase, that extra clause, is what separates us. Is that there is a hope that we have. Not just for physical healing, but for other types of healing. Do you know the word salvation means healing? 
And it's not just for you personally. It's for our world. It's for others. It's for, it's for not just you and God, but yourself. You live between the stovetop and the table. In other words, Jesus is over there, and he has said, it is finished. And you can smell it, and you can see it, and you can almost taste it, and at certain moments of life, God is gracious enough to let us taste what it's going to be, but it's not on the table yet. But we live with a different sense of hope, that when we say goodbye to someone, when they pass away, that we know that there's a God who cares about that relationship and can and will restore it for eternity. So first we have perspective and we have hope, and then here's the last one. To my friend in my small group, it gives us a sense of purpose for every day in our lives. All of a sudden, this is a message that's not compelling because I repackaged it. It's robust and it has traction with our culture because if God created humanity, the blueprints in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then he knows what we desire and what we long for. And so we probably can trust, we can certainly trust his grand narrative and what we learn from it to share with others and to live out ourselves. Waterstone, we get the, the joy of being able to say, my gospel is not just avoid heaven and help others. Jesus' gospel is that there is a world we live in that we have a true perspective on the evil and a grounded hope in the redemption and a part to play in the middle between the stovetop and the table. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask this morning that uh, this message uh, would only elevate your work on the cross that all of this is possible because of Christ. Thank you. Amen.